The Fads of David Dad by John Arthur Barry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Longworth. The Dads had been married twelve months and lived very happily together until Mr. Dad began to develop fads. He was a civil servant, a post office employee, with a salary of £250 per annum. While staying at a farm near Goulbourne, on the occasion of his yearly holiday, he met his wife, a hearty, jolly, sensible young countrywoman, who, when the smart clerk asked her to share his fortunes with her, could hardly bring herself to believe that he was in earnest. They lived now in a comfortable cottage in one of the remoter marine suburbs of Sydney. And, until David commenced his course of fads, his wife was accustomed to think herself a very lucky woman. Mr. Dad, although scarcely thirty years of age, was a person who took himself very seriously. Still, on the whole, he was, what his acquaintances called him, a very decent chap and one who, while not liable to astonish the world by any outbursts of exceptional ability, could, it might be imagined, be depended upon to abjure all experiments of the kind he presently began to make a trial of. "'There's a nice bit of fillet for dinner tonight, dear,' remarked his wife, as David, having got himself into his house clothes, came into the dining room. I'm afraid you'll have to eat it yourself then, Georgie. Mrs. Dad had been christened Georgina, replied her husband. No more meat for me. I'm convinced that it's the source of half the social mischief in this country. I've been reading the subject up lately, and I find that vegetarianism is the one thing needful for the betterment of both mind and body. Will you see, dear that there are always plenty of them on the table? But surely, Dave, asked Mrs. Dad in amazement, not at every meal. Certainly, replied her husband, I don't expect to ever touch meat again in any shape or form. Some more peas and potatoes, please? Just a spoonful of gravy, then, implored his wife, almost in tears. Not even a suspicion, said David, as he heroically munched his vegetables. And presently, dear, when you see how well the new diet agrees with me, I hope you will follow my example. But somehow, as time passed, David, neither in health nor temper, showed the expected advantage to be derived from the new departure. His wife, being a sensible woman, made no remarks. On the contrary, she tried to vary his diet as much as possible and learned to cook no less than a dozen different sorts of vegetables, each in as many fashions. Even when Mr. Dad allowed his hair to grow longer than is usual with the majority of sane citizens, she forbore to remonstrate. She, however, firmly resisted all David's persuasion to join him in his obsession, and contented herself 
with preparing appetising little dishes for herself, careless, apparently, that the savour of these reaching her husband, as he sat forcing his appetite into a compote of carrots, a fraudulent imitation of a mutton-chop constructed out of peas, cauliflowers and potatoes, or a beefsteak whose foundation consisted mainly of turnips and tomatoes, seemed to make him unhappy, not to say morose. Always spare of body, David presently began to get so fine that his friends nicknamed him Radish. Thereupon he added apples and nuts to his dietary, consuming enormous quantities of these fruits. But to no purpose. David was of all men one adapted by nature for a generous diet, and daily he grew visibly more miserable, while the grateful fumes from Georgie's side of the table at times tried his self-control almost beyond the limits of endurance. And at last came the psychological moment, not entirely unexpected by the wife. Before her was a dish of stewed tripe, cooked as few women but herself could cook it, aforetime David's favourite dish. The appetising odour titillated his tortured nostrils with a very frenzy of desire. All at once there sprang up in his stomach an irresistible loathing towards a mess before him, and, suddenly, in angry, almost savage accents, he shouted, For heaven's sake, Georgie, give a man something fit to eat! For a few months David, having cut his hair, and abjured vegetarianism, put on flesh, and leavened his somewhat didactic temperament with a cheeriness born of good living, let well alone, and essayed no new experiments or divagations. Presently, however, he took to studying the effect of clothing on the human frame in conjunction with climatic environment. At least, that is how he put it to Georgie. It was then about the middle of summer, and as a result of his cogitations, he took to white and bore with equanimity the salutes of the small boys who yelled hokey-pokey after him, as well as with the notable increase in the laundry bills. There cannot be a doubt, remarked David, that in a semi-tropical climate such as ours is drill or some equally suitable material is the rational dress for men. The only wonder is that the garb has not long ere now become universal. All through this torrid weather I am enabled to keep my body cool and my brain in good working order, while my colleagues at the office, in their heavy tweeds, perspire and indulge in irritable growlings. Presently, he left off wearing woollen underclothing and took to cotton, having become thoroughly convinced that cotton was not only lighter, but warmer, to say nothing of the question of economy. To all his wife's suggestions that coals and chills would probably be the outcome of the business, David turned a deaf ear. 
The weather continued fine and hot, and he marvelled that nobody else followed his example. Then one day, happening to be working overtime, he was caught on the way home by a bitter southerly and chilled to the very marrow of his bones. A sharp attack of pneumonia followed, which the doctor brutally told him served him right, and when David was able to get about again, although never tired of inveighing against the treachery of the climate, he gave up rational dress once and for all. But to an inquiring mind like his, inaction was impossible, and one evening he arrived at his home carrying an electric battery under his arm. He had been reading up certain medical treatises recommending electricity as a cure for most human ailments, and now proceeded to fill himself with what he called the vital spark. He attempted to induce his wife to join him in the experiment. But after the first shock, Mrs. Dead said she believed it did not agree with her, and she left him to pursue his latest fad alone. He would sit for hours at a time, holding the handles of the machine and declaring that he was being gradually permeated with the current and that it was making a new man of him. His wife, however, could discover no difference and the eternal buzz became a decided nuisance. Presently, however, he came across a book strongly recommending all people, whether well or ill, to live as much as possible in the open air. Doors and windows were to be kept open winter and summer, night and day, and thorough ventilation encouraged in every possible manner. The promised results were a practical immunity from every description of disease. The scheme tickled David's fancy mightily, but Georgie was still strong in protest. It's like offering a premium to burglars, she said. Besides, you know how susceptible to cold you are, and living in droughts will only mean another big doctor's bill. That's exactly the reason, dear, replied David eagerly. We ought to give the thing a trial. Dr. Smith, the great scientist, says that a course of such treatment, if persevered in, will so harden and improve our constitutions as to render them practically impenetrable to the attacks of hostile bacteria or bacilli. And, as for burglars, the last house they would dream of entering would be one thrown wide open. In such cases they always suspect a trap. By dint of such argument, David at last gained an unwilling assent to the new venture. The result could scarcely be called encouraging. Georgie was unable to sleep for fear of thieves. Her husband was never free of coughs and colds. It was winter, and Burley Cottage, standing on rather high ground, was simply enfiladed by the winds, the westerlies especially holding high revel along the passages and in the rooms. But David bore it all with the stoicism of a martyr. In spite of colds in the head 
and colds in the throat, of sneezings and hawkings and catars, he declared that he felt himself perceptibly benefited. They had of late employed a general, but the fresh air supply was too plentiful for her, and she left, after calling David a raging lunatic and prophesying that some night they would awake with their throats cut. So far as Mrs. Dad was concerned, the position was becoming intolerable, and her husband seemed deaf to remonstrance or ridicule. She, therefore, determined by hook or by crook to end this worst fad of all, and presently she hit upon a scheme that she thought might answer. Burley Cottage was in a very isolated position, and at the back of the garden was a clump of rocks, among which, in a sort of cave, lived an old troglodyte, who now and again was called in to do up the paths and cut the grass on the small lawn. The only name by which the dads knew the man was Bill, and to Bill Mrs. Dad applied for help in her extremity. Yes, lady, I understands, he replied, as Georgie unfolded her plan, and a sly grin curled his thick lips as he repeated her instructions. Everything other bosses, hats, boots, socks, all is wearing togs, and a few of your dresses and knick-knacks, yes, lady, certainly, and you're going to stay the night in a friend's house, and then I'm to bring the swag to me camp yonder and plant it. Then by and by, when the hue and cry is all over, I'm to bring em back again and say how I found em all stowed away in a cave where the burglars hid em in, thinking as how they was pursued. That's quite correct, Bill, replied poor Georgie, strong in her faith, in the honesty of the troglodyte, dirty of person and unprepossessing of feature though he might be, and little guessing that all the time he was hard put to it to keep from sniggering at the transparent simplicity of her scheme, to give her husband a lesson, and to teach him for the future to keep a closed house o' nights. And you won't make a noise, Bill, continued Georgie, not me, Lee, said Bill with a scornful sniff. I've been too long at... I means as I'm that light-footed a fellow, you wouldn't believe. There ain't nothing locked in the crib, is there, lady? He suddenly asked. No, replied Georgie. But of course, everything you want will be in the wardrobe. Of course, lady, of course, agreed Bill emphatically. You may take your solemn days, as nothing else won't be touched. On the appointed night, as luck would have it, David, by way of enlarging his experiment, had determined to sleep on the veranda. The house, however, remained open as ever. Thus, the troglodyte's task was an absurdly easy one and when Georgie arrived in time to get David's breakfast, she found that her instructions had been exceeded to in a preposterous extent. 
David greeted her in his sleeping suit, having been able to discover nothing else. That was all right so far, but then she discovered, in addition, that she herself possessed only what clothes she carried on her back, and that her jewellery, as well as George's, was missing, together with any of the wedding presents worth taking away. Mrs. Dad simply collapsed and hysterically wept. Simple as she might have been in her estimate of the troglodyte's character, she was quick enough to perceive that here was catastrophe, not pretense. David, who was hoarse to voicelessness from his night's sojourn on the veranda, gesticulated wildly and made husky grating sounds, in which were unintelligible but nonetheless smacked of language as known in the police courts. The nearest neighbour was about a mile away, till the nearest police station was three miles. Leaving poor Georgie to her devices, David set off to the neighbour's house. In the tramp through the bush, his slippers came off repeatedly. He cut his feet among the rocks, he also stubbed his toes. When at last he arrived, with a keen westerly playing all sorts of pranks among his pyjamas, two women, the only people at home, slammed the door in his face and shrieked at the top of their voices. In vain he waved his hands and pointed and shook his head and tried by gestures to interpret his woes. There was a lunatic asylum not far away, and presently a shotgun wavering, but otherwise fairly direct, covered him from one of the windows. At this hint David departed, looking more like a maniac than ever. Later on he arrived, in a rainstorm, at a suburban railway station, and, appearing on the crowded platform, was quickly hustled into a cloakroom, and there secured, pending the arrival of a constable. Having to some extent recovered his voice, he tried to explain and expostulate, and in return the officials soothed him with promises. They said they quite believed in his sanity, and were sure that he could prove that he had not escaped from the asylum over yonder. was indeed a responsible civil servant, and that they were only detaining him because he was wet and might catch a dangerous cold allowed to go any further in such violent weather. They also gave him a blanket and a cup of hot coffee. Presently the police arrived and hailed poor protesting, shivering David off to the local lock-up, where eventually he was detained on a magistrate's order for medical examination and while inquiries were being made. And the various newspapers came out with announcements to the effect that an alleged escaped lunatic calling himself the Postmaster-General, had been apprehended. It was added that, although exhibiting violent symptoms at first, the maniac appeared to be on the whole of a mild description. Meanwhile, at Burley Cottage, Georgie had pulled herself together a little and was endeavouring to make a more detailed inventory of their losses than had been possible in the first rush of despair. She never doubted that David would presently return with the police, 
to whom she had determined to make a clean breast of the whole business. A letter that the afternoon post brought, however, completely altered this resolution. It contained news of a legacy. No great sum, certainly, but more than enough to cover the value of all the troglodytes' plunder a hundred times over. Thus, when later on David arrived in a cart, escorted by two constables, they heard only a curtailed story. But to David, after imparting to him the tidings of good fortune, following fast on the heels of evil hap, to a limp, bedraggled, disgruntled and ashamed David, his wife made a full confession. And David, somewhat rehabilitated, thereby in his own esteem, but still suffering from the successive shocks to both his self-conceit and to his physical system, rose to the occasion with all the magnanimity of the injured male, and said, There, there, dear, don't say a word more about the wretched business. I freely forgive you for it all, and there have been no more fads in the dad's household since, and these matters were history years ago. End of The Fads of David Dad by John Arthur Barry